Thank you, Tom, for leading us in the Lord's table. Well, good morning, everybody. No, I'm not Josh. He fortunately is enjoying, I think, a great time with his family in England uh, preparing for Phoebe's wedding. I'll take a moment and then allow the children to be dismissed to their program. And uh, I'll encourage you, if you want, go ahead and grab your Bible, or if you don't have one, there's a pew Bible in front of you, you may want to turn that one to page number 826. You know, if if you search through the Bible, you're going to find a number of places that offer an account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I put quotes around triumphal entry because sometimes I wonder just how triumphant was his really, really was his entry. Now today we're going to look at Matthew's account in chapter 21 uh, of that entry, but we're going to save the Palm Sunday message for next week. Today I just want to talk about some of the miracles of Palm Sunday. And what a scene that must have been. It must have been really incredible. But have you ever wondered, why was it necessary why, why was it necessary for that whole thing? Where Jesus had already made enemies of the, of the Jewish leaders, the church leaders. So was it necessary to have this scene play out in front of everybody and, and, and build everybody up and then have it all come crashing down just a few days later? Well, obviously it was necessary because it was God's will that it happened just that way. In a novel, uh, The Bridge of San Luis Rey, Thornton Wilder tells a story of five people who were uh, from different social economic backgrounds, different social levels. Then they all fell to their death when a rope bridge in Peru collapsed and dropped them into a deep ravine. And the story is about Brother Juniper, who then uh, he saw the, the working of God in that whole thing. He witnessed the tragedy. But he wanted to investigate and find out those mysterious workings of God in that kind of a tragedy. So over six years of exhaustive research, he found circumstances that led the five different people to be on that bridge at that faithful moment. And he amassed a book of information. Well, this fascinating story is kind of an illustration of how often circumstances coincide and we seek answers. Now, if you think about it, coincide, coincidence, uh, no. We know as believers there are no coincidences. God is sovereign and in control. So this, the, but this whole thing about the different coinciding of circumstances is true, that there are no coincidences when we read Scripture. And the seeming coincidences, quote-unquote, of Jesus' life were nothing more than just the fulfillment of God's sovereign, organized, prophetic word. Now, this particular story is so important that it was recorded in all four Gospels. In addition to our, to our passage today in Matthew, Mark records it in chapter 11, Luke gives us a few words in chapter 19, and then John gives us an account in chapter 12. But today we're going to just uh, examine some of the, 
I'll refer to them as the miracles surrounding Palm Sunday. We're going to, again, save that message, Palm Sunday message, for Palm Sunday. <laughs> it's next week. So I want to start by talking about the miracle of preparation. I'll be reading from the New King James, and it's on the screen if you don't have a Bible and would rather read it from there. But just, here we go. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And then verse 6 says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. In this passage, the owner of the donkey and the colt was likely on his way to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. He left his animals tied in the village near Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. As they got closer to Jerusalem, Jesus then sent two of his guys in to, on an errand to retrieve those animals. And he gave them an answer in case anyone happened to challenge them when they untied them and took them. He said, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. Now, the Greek word Lord is simply a title of respect, kind of like our word Mr. But in Scripture here, it's, it's often used in the New Testament to mean sovereign Lord, as it was here. And we can take from this passage, I believe that the owner was a believer. That is, he was a man who believed in Jesus as his spiritual king. And he recognized that a king has the right to use anyone's property. So he allowed the disciples to take his animals. When the disciples got to the village, everything worked out, just like Jesus told them it would. The omniscient, omnipotent Lord of the universe told them what to expect. And of course, it happened the way he said it would. Now, in preparation for his entrance into the city of Jerusalem, the Lord's sovereign purpose is in full view here. I'm not going to take the time to dwell on this passage today, but I just want to point out again verse 6, where it says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They obeyed his directive. It might have seemed a little odd at the time, but they did what they were told. And I point that out to illustrate that when, in the knowledge that our sovereign Lord knows the beginning from the end, when we're obedient to his commands, we never have to fear that obedience, regardless of how strange the requirement may have sounded or may seem. We don't have to fear obedience when we're doing what the Lord commands us to do. So that was the, the miracle of preparation he prepared for his entry. Secondly, I want to look at a, a miracle of the prophecy. Again, notice in verses 4 and 5, Matthew tells us, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now that ancient prophecy from Zechariah instructed the Jews exactly how they should expect their coming king. 
maybe a hundred of these types of references that Matthew spoke of in his writings. Now, this triumphal entry that we celebrate on Palm Sunday every year occurred with a jubilant multitude, waving of palm branches, people throwing garments on the road, uh, singing hosannas to the Lord in adoration of Him. It was moving the entire city, and it's recognized as the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Now, again, we'll look at this triumphal entry in more detail next week, but for now we can see that the prophecy could only refer to Jesus. He's the only one that had any verifiable credentials to prove that he was Israel's king. He's the only one that fulfilled the prophecies necessary to be identified as the king of Israel. Now, uh, some people have mentioned that we don't usually associate kingship with riding on a donkey. But the Old Testament scripture tells us the donkey was the royal animal of Jewish monarchs. If you know where Zechariah is and you want to turn there quickly, I'll give you a second to do that. <laughs> but in Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, while Zechariah's prophecy begins with the words, Rejoice greatly, notice that Matthew omitted them in his quote here. Because as Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem, he did not rejoice greatly. Luke's account in chapter 19 tells us, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus knew the judgment that was coming, both for him and ultimately upon the city of Jerusalem itself. Matthew also omitted Zechariah's words, Righteous and having salvation is he. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem not as an act of justice or judgment at this point, but as an act of mercy and grace, which we benefit from even. But the next time Israel would see her king, he would come as in Revelation 19, not riding on a donkey in humility, but in great power and glory, riding a great white horse in Revelation. Now, it is miraculous to see how the prophecy of this event was so accurately fulfilled. But many parts will be fulfilled later when he comes a second time. And that's often the case. The portion of the prophecy that refers to Jesus' first advent, his first coming, is carefully recorded in the New Testament. And the part that's not recorded is left for future fulfillment. Now, some people don't seem to be aware of the fact that you can write a very complete story of Jesus' life just using Old Testament prophecies concerning his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. If you take those prophecies and put them down in the right order, you will have the same story that we have in the New Testament. Why? The scripture tells us that not one jot or tittle 
Not one little mark, not one little abbreviation, nothing of God's prophetic word will be left unfulfilled. He gave us this so that we might know. And it's interesting that the Jews, the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, studied what they had of the Bible. And they knew these prophecies. They probably had them memorized, all of them. They were taught as children to know those prophecies. So this was a miracle and a great encouragement to those of us who who read and study this in believing faith. It's the miracle of prophecy and leads us to our third miracle, the miracle of the presentation. Now there are a couple of miraculous things that are wrapped up in the presentation of the sacrifice. Firstly, I want us to just be reminded of the cult and the cult's submission. According to Mark 11, the cult in question here had never been ridden. He was unbroken. Any of you tried to get on an unbroken horse? (laughs) Good luck. This colt had never been ridden. He was unbroken, and yet he submitted to the Lord. He did not object to Jesus being on his back. Jesus had dominion. He had dominion over all the sheep and all the oxen and all the beasts of the field. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. And this colt was submissive as a reminder to us that even the animals submit when he is in his kingly role. Now the second miraculous aspect of the presentation was the response of the people. Now, This being the Passover season, there were probably somewhere in the neighborhood of two million people in and around Jerusalem. And this is the only time that I'm aware of that Jesus planned and promoted a public demonstration of any, any sort. Before now, you'll recall that whenever he had a healing that he had done, he cautioned those that he healed, go and tell no one. And generally, he stayed away from crowds, although a lot of people gathered when he taught. But he usually sought solitude afterward. (laughs) Kind of contrast with our leaders of today and and, and wannabe leaders. They scramble for attention of the crowds at any opportunity, or they scramble to find some kind of a sound bite that can be broadcast. But Jesus was more comfortable alone in the desert or in the mountains praying. Yet on this day, a great multitude followed him, and he went with it. Jesus was, in fact, presenting himself to his people as their king. Now, the event climaxed uh, his presentation as the Messiah. And if the people had received him as their Lord and King, he would have been their Lord and King, and they received him not. Scripture, in fact, gives us the record of his ultimate rejection in Matthew 21, verse 9. That tells us that the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! So here is the King of Kings, Acclaimed by the crowds as he approaches his capital city in this hour of triumph. And yet within 
a few days, those very same admirers singing their hosannas would be the ones crying in Matthew 27, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. From here to here was the people's response. The miracle of the presentation. There's a fourth miracle here. It's not readily seen, perhaps, and that's the miracle of the Passover sacrifice. When taken in context, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is a very poignant picture. When people came to the Passover from Palestine and the areas beyond, they brought with them their animal sacrifices, usually lambs. Literally thousands, thousands of lambs were brought to Jerusalem and kept for three days in the homes of the people that were going to eat them. This is in accordance with the law of Moses in Exodus 12. Even as Jesus was presenting himself as the king, these lambs were being brought into Jerusalem, perhaps even on the very day that he entered. Now, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that a census that was taken one year put the number of slain lambs, are you ready for this? At 256,500 lambs. They must have flooded the streets of the city. And Jesus was likely literally surrounded by sacrificial lambs and Passover lambs. And here he was himself, our Passover lamb. Even as he was presenting himself as the king that day, He knew in his heart that he would be rejected. So why did he present himself again? It was God's sovereign purpose and will. His rejection in the city of Jerusalem was just the final step before his crucifixion that was necessary that we might be redeemed. Within days... The Lamb of God would be slain as our Passover Lamb. Jesus, the prophesied Messiah, who fulfilled all the prophecies, who was clearly the only one who fulfilled all those prophecies, who had the credentials to be presented as the Messiah, had come to put an end to the people's animal sacrifices with his own death. Our Passover Lamb who paid the penalty for our sin and was slain that we might not experience spiritual death. Jesus was himself the miracle of the Passover sacrifice. Now as we close this, I want us to look at the responses to these miracles. If you read through all the accounts of Jesus triumphal entry into Jerusalem in the four Gospels, you'll see some some strange responses by the people. For example, in Matthew 21, verses 10 and 11, you'll see that some were bold and remarkably ignorant. In spite of the training, the teaching they had experienced growing up, verses 10 and 11 said, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet 
Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You can't help but ask the question, how did these Jewish students of the Old Testament who had memorized these prophecies, who memorized the scriptures, how could they have rejected or recited Zechariah's messianic prophecy word for word, and yet they missed this moment when it's literally and absolutely fulfilled right before their eyes? Just a few verses ago in their, in their songs, the crowd called him the son of David. But here, when asked who he was, they clearly didn't even understand what they were singing. They replied, he's just a prophet from Nazareth. But if you look over at Luke's account, he records a very different response. Chapter 19, verses 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto the Master when he heard them singing these hymns on that day, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Tell them to stop that. And Jesus told them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Some were bold, some were ignorant, some were belligerent. Rebuke your disciples. Tell them they shouldn't say those kind of things. You're not the Messiah. Jewish leaders figured if the Messiah was coming, they'd know. And yet, they didn't. And if you'll turn to John, you'll find two more responses. The first one is in John 12, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So even his disciples were blind. They had lived with him, studied with him, eaten with him, heard him day after day for three years, and they had heard him prophesy about what would happen to him. And yet when the moment came, they missed its significance. Only in retrospect did they remember what had happened and what he had said would happen. They were insensitive, really, to what was happening around them. Even though Jesus orchestrated the whole thing for them and for others. How many of us miss spiritually significant events in our lives? We're so desensitized and distracted by concerns of the world. We get wrapped up in what's going on around us. Uh, how things are affecting us. How many of us can look back with 2020 hindsight and say, oh, now I understand what that was all about. I sure have. And then our last response that we look at is in John chapter 12, verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. There was a group of people that had come to Jerusalem witnessing this event who were believers. They had seen a miracle, in fact, very recently in Bethany. They had seen Jesus call Lazarus, Lazarus from his grave, from his tomb. And they bore witness in this verse here. When they saw Jesus coming into the city 
and they heard the hosannas being sung, they understood what was happening. In all of these accounts, only one of the four Gospels mentions, or one of the four groups, I'm sorry, mentioned, have really caught the significance of the event. And this actually was a small group, a very small group, compared to the multitudes who were shouting, Hosanna! They were singing without knowing or understanding what they were shouting and singing about. But though the group was small, they had credibility. Their local friends and families, many of them, believed their testimony as to what they had seen. And importantly, even the leaders of the Sanhedrin believed them. Look at John 12, 9-11. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, as well as Jesus, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the response of the leaders, take them both out. Get rid of them. They're undermining our authority and our power here. Lazarus' mere presence in the living flesh, was enough to make him a target of the Sanhedrin. And they plotted to take him out to cut off that group's testimony. And now the Lord presents himself. The Lord also is presenting himself to us as our Passover lamb to embrace or to reject. In Jerusalem that day, a few got it. Most did not. How about here? Do we get it? Do we see it? Do we understand what he did that day? And will we embrace it? We should examine our hearts today. Make sure we don't fall prey to the desensitizing effects of familiarity. We come into his house every week, we sing, we worship, we do our own hosannas, but we can't become insensitive to his real voice in our hearts. If we're not careful, we can be like the multitudes in Jerusalem that day. We can go through the motions of saying the words but they don't register in our hearts. We can sing Hosanna and not understand what we're singing. We can call him King of Kings, but not make him the king of our own lives. We call him Lord, but he doesn't rule in our everyday existence. Next week on Palm Sunday, we're going to look at the, uh, this event in more detail from Luke chapter 9. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I want you to think about that phrase before next week. He set his face toward Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means he was committed. 
He knew where he was going. He knew why he was going. And he set his face toward doing what his father called him to do. I would pray this morning that we would be like those who had witnessed Lazarus' resurrection and believe and bear witness to the power of Jesus. This is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the prophesied one. He comes as our king. So as we prepare our hearts for the rest of this day, let's prepare to worship him together. I'm going to close this in prayer in just a moment. I'm also going to invite anyone that's here who has a need. They would like to, to have prayed over. Would you, would you just come? Feel free to. Come and let us pray with you. And I'm also going to invite the, the Chellis family, at least the parents that are in here. They're, this is their last Sunday with us. We've been blessed to have them as part of our family here for a few months now. And God is calling them to another, another place for another project. And I don't even know what that is. They may not even know what that is yet. And yet God is calling them and they're obeying and going. But we just want to pray for them as they go. So uh, I'm also going to pray for our time of fellowship that we're going to enjoy with a meal about 10 minutes after we're done here. And again, I want to invite everyone to be a part of that. Stick around and be a part of our family celebration today. Would you pray with me? Lord, I would pray this morning that everyone in here would receive you in their hearts, in their lives, on this day that we recognize as a holy day, that we would recognize who you are and why you came. You are our King. You are our Lord, our Sovereign Lord, the Messiah. And we receive you in spirit and in truth today. Lord, as our team comes to close us with another song of praise, may we take your presence into our hearts. May each of us respond by embracing your act of grace and mercy and make you the Lord of our lives. Give those of us who have already embraced that gift wise enough to be focused on what that means for our daily lives. Bless the rest of this day as we spend it in praise, in worship, and going about those lives that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.